0: I was reading earlier this week and discovered something that I thought was quite interesting. Did you know that it is reported that more than 25 million Americans are afraid to travel by air? You may be one of them. You may say, yeah, that's right. I know how the number is so big. I'm one of them. More than 25 million Americans are afraid to travel by air. And all the reminding them of airline travel... Being safer than so many other things in their lives does very little to calm their fears. Many of them know that all too well the statistics say that they are safer in an airliner than in the family car or in the bathtub. But that doesn't matter. Researchers say that such persons are usually not consciously afraid that they're going to be in a plane that's going to crash. Instead, They resist the idea of surrendering themselves to an aircraft that is leaving the ground. That's the big fear. The idea of leaving the ground so that in the end, the root of their anxiety and their fear is in losing control. And I think that's amazing to realize that, especially when you contemplate the nature of the Christian life and what God requires of us. You see, when we come to Christ and we begin to walk with Him, what we often have to do, at least in terms of the way the world thinks, what we often have to do is put ourselves into the care of God and leave, as it were, quote, solid ground. We have to step out into that realm of faith that takes the control away from our lives. And yet the wonderful thing is that The Lord is always faithful to be with us and to manifest that He is our solid footing as we step away from solid footing as we know it in a worldly sense. It is truly a fearful thing in the beginning especially and as you go along until you have years behind you of trusting the Lord it can be a fearful thing to trust in an invisible God. So we have in front of us a great account A great miracle, actually several miracles bound up in this account, but we have here lessons, lessons to learn from what was in fact an unavoidable test that God took these men through. Lessons that will minister to our fears, increase our understanding of God's love and at the same time build our faith. So we have much here in front of us. I've entitled it, Lessons from an Unavoidable Test. Look at verse 15, and we'll read down to verse 21. You know that Jesus has just finished feeding the multitudes, and we studied that last time. So in verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Now, when we read that they got into the sea to go over toward Capernaum, if you've never been there, you have to realize it's not a sea; it's not a giant ocean; it's it's a lake. It's not very wide, and it's not very long. It's about 13 miles long, I think 6 miles wide at the widest point. So you're not really dealing with a big sea. So get in your mind, they're, they're going from where they were in the east, northeast, just down a ways, over to the northwest. So that they're really going a distance in the beginning of about 6 miles. It's not that long of a journey. So get that fixed in your mind. And what happens is they're heading toward Capernaum. Jesus had now made that his headquarters, and he actually lived and did more miracles in Capernaum, lived longer there, more often there, and did more there than any other city in all of his ministry. So they're heading over toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing... So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. And he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now this is John's account. Mark gives us an account of this. Matthew gives us an account of this. John's is especially brief. Now, if you ask the question why, you have to remember, we talked about this when we first started the Gospel of John. John wrote his Gospel about 40 years after Mark and Matthew, so that, as well as Luke, so that as he's writing, he's looking back. They already have the other Gospels in their hands. People already know the things that are taught there. So he figures, why should I repeat what they have done? So in an account like this, he gets right to the point, realizing that Matthew and Mark fill in a lot of the gaps so that you can have the whole story. And you have to understand that with a lot of John's writing when he's brief. But here in this section, I want to draw out four things that literally are obvious and glaring to me as they encourage me. First of all, there is an unwavering protection, an unwavering protection that Jesus exercises here. Secondly, there is an unavoidable test that the disciples have to face. There's no way around it. An unavoidable test. Third, there is an undeniable love that Jesus manifests to them. And fourth, there is an unpredictable deliverance. And I see a very distinct pattern here in the way the Lord works with us. An unwavering protection, and an unavoidable test, an undeniable love, and an unpredictable deliverance. Now you have to realize he has been with them before in another situation where they were in a storm and he calmed the storm. So before you get too tough on these guys thinking, well, wait a minute, this is the same old thing, another storm, another boat, you know, and Jesus is going to calm the storm. Why don't you guys get the point? But you have to realize that time he was in the boat that time it was in the middle of daylight this time it's in the middle of darkness this time he's not in the boat and I don't know about you but that's enough of a difference to make a massive difference to me so here they are in this situation and it all begins in verse 15 and down to 16 with this unwavering protection you may not see it at first but it's here the first thing I see here is in the midst of this situation Jesus protected himself look at verse 15 It says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. What this is talking about here has to do with the desire of the crowd. The desire of the crowd. You see, this crowd, it's a crowd of people. They're already emotional. It's Passover time. They're moving masses of them up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which probably accounts for why so many of them were there. And as they have watched Jesus make all this food from the few loaves and fishes, they have now witnessed firsthand, they have held it, they have eaten it, they have witnessed firsthand the power of God in Jesus Christ. Now, they don't necessarily connect that in any way that we would. So that when they see this great display of power, their immediate thought is, here is our big chance. We want to throw off the Roman yoke. We can make him a king. The Bible says here that they were going to take him by force to make him a king. It doesn't say they sat down and discussed with Jesus, you know, wouldn't it be nice if now you overthrew the Roman yoke, you must be the answer. No, what it was is they were talking among themselves and they decided given the nature of how Jesus was, that perhaps he wouldn't go along with it willingly, so they were going to pick him up and grab him and take him to Jerusalem. And in the fervor of the Passover crowds, which would be millions of people crammed into Jerusalem, they would thrust him forth and pronounce him king. And you know the potential of a fervent, zealous mob in the reverse sense by what happened to him at the end of his life. You get a mob going in a certain direction and pretty soon everybody is reacting to that. Given the fact they had 5,000 men, they had an immediate nucleus of an army, and this was their plan. The problem with the plan, however, is that it was so dreadfully unspiritual. It so missed the mark of everything that Jesus was about. So here is the desire of the crowd And you know, they were bent on using Jesus to throw off the tyranny of Rome. I find it tremendously sad that they were not more concerned about taking Jesus and his love and his power and being set free from the tyranny of their own sin and setting others free from the tyranny of their own sin. And I see a tendency toward that today. There is always this tendency to make Jesus the fixer of all governmental problems, to make Jesus the fixer of all social problems, and to become so preoccupied with that that you spend all your time and energy to fix social problems in the name of Jesus instead of taking care of the big problem, which is the sin problem and living a godly life in your own way, as we talked about Sunday, so you are an effective vessel for the master to free people from their sin because it takes free people to free people. And there's a big tendency today, and we're seeing a lot of the fallout and the bad fruit of it as the years roll by. And we have time to tell all. We have seen so many people going this way. Jesus is more concerned about Saving a sinner so he can change the sinner's life from the inside out If enough sinners are changed And they walk with Christ And lead enough others to Christ Then the social climate around them will change And the influence that people have on the government Will go more in the right direction Every Christian should be a responsible citizen But there's a tendency to move In the wrong direction over the long haul And Jesus was very sensitive to that, and so he draws back from that. He protects himself from that. And you know what's interesting in this particular case is that it was his humility that left him free to reject their desire to make him king. I mean, what would you do if you were in a crowd of 5,000 people plus women and children? If you were in a crowd that large, we're probably talking about anaheim stadium at a harvest crusade on a friday night that's about the size of the crowd now what would you do if they suddenly all surrounded you and wanted to make you king you guys would that be a hard thing to resist (laughs) one of the main reasons as a man he was able to resist that is because he was truly humble and he wasn't affected by that because he was never looking for that He was never looking for man's promotion. He was never looking for man's exaltation. The devil had said to him, Look, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. And he rejected it then and he rejects it here. And at the heart of it all is his great humility. His humility left him free to walk away from worldly popularity and promotion. And he understood that that would have ruined the will of God for his life. I see, you know, of course he's God, of course he has all the insight of God's plan, but as a man at the same time, the humility played a key thing, key role here. And there's no doubt in my mind that Satan was active here in this crowd. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. I'll give it all to you. And you can accomplish what you want through this means. But it's Jonathan Edwards that said it so many years ago, and I've echoed it many times. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Nothing sets a person so much out of the reach of the devil as humility. And I believe in my life that true humility will keep us free from the devil's promotions as it did Jesus. Spurgeon once put it this way. He said, success exposes a man to the pressure of people and thus tempts him to hold on to his gains by means of fleshly methods and practices, and to let himself be ruled wholly by the dictatorial demands of incessant expansion. Success can go to my head, and unless I remember that it is God who accomplishes the work, and that he can continue to do so without my help. He says... And that he will be able to make out with other means whenever he cuts me down. Unless I remember that, I'll be tempted to be proud and cave into the popularity around me and the exaltation of man. Rather than to be humble. You see what happens is you begin in the spirit and then you try to continue in the flesh. You start to get some popularity, some notoriety. It goes to your head. People want to promote you. And rather than being free from that because of humility... To just say, God, your will be done. Whatever they think is one thing, but what you think is everything. Unless you have the true humility to free you, then you will be caught by that and deceived. That's why George Whitfield, midst of all the success he had, he used to pray, O oh, Heavenly Father, for thy dear Son's sake, keep me from climbing. Do you know what climbing is? We call it in our day, climbing the ladder. We have a lot of names for it in our day because a lot of people do it and a lot of us have fallen into it in the past. It's where you see what's going on around you and you seek to use that to climb the ladder for your own fame and your own success. And you do it in the flesh. It is not something that happens in the spirit at that point. I believe that humility is a true sign of nearness to Jesus Christ. I see it here in Jesus and I see it in those that live really near to Him. Humility. I don't care what a person says about how spirit-filled they are, about how close they are with God. If they don't have humility, then it's all a sham. Because Jesus is the ultimate example of humility, and to be near to Him is to become like Him, to become humble and free like Him, to go on and let God work His will in your life. So much we could say about that. Robert Layton once said that God's choice acquaintances are humble men. Humble women. In other words, the closest people to Jesus are the most humble people that walk with Jesus, and walking closest with Jesus will make you most humble. It's a full circle. So Jesus protected himself, and his humility was at the heart of it. Secondly, he protected his disciples. Look at verse 15 again. Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, we read, When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea. So right at this time, as they're coming to make Him a king and He's rejecting it, at the same time, He turns to His disciples and He says, It's time for you guys to go. He's protecting him Himself and He's protecting them. Do you know what He's protecting them against? The influence of the misguided multitude the influence of the misguided multitude hold your finger here and turn to Matthew 14:22 Matthew gives us some details here in the same account but it's Matthew's version of it and here they want to make him a king And Matthew says, immediately. Jesus had an immediate reaction to that. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. He made them do it. He did it immediately. Never underestimate the persuasive power of many misguided people. It's something that we have to deal with Really, it begins to be very intense when we go from adolescenthood into being a teenager. And suddenly what our peers think is everything. There is a sense in which no matter how good the parents, and no matter how good the kid, in the kid's mind and heart, the kid thinks that what their friends think is the critical issue. And so they want to do what so-and-so's doing over at school or down the block and the line is always the same. What do they say? But mom, everybody's doing it. After a nice long biblical speech. But mom, but dad, I, I heard all that. But that's not so important as this reality. Everybody's doing it. Oh, the Bible's important. Oh, what you think is important. And you've been around a while. But there's something far more important than that, and that is what my friends think. That's everything. You know, it's like just so important. (laughs) We have to deal with it all along the way in life. Never underestimate the persuasive power of many misguided people and misguided people that are united together. Many of them... Misguided and at the same time, united together. You see, the tendency to be deceived is often increased by the size of the movement. And if you don't believe that, just look around the body of Christ and all the deception that is around us today and how many people you know that give you this line of reasoning. It's like an adolescent line of reasoning that says, how could so many people be so united, so excited, and so wrong. I have gotten little notes and messages and things from some of you that show me you have friends that have jumped into these movements right up front rather than hanging back and watching and searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. They jump in up front because their assumption is how can so many people be wrong at once? And they're so united. And they all testify of the same things. You see, the tendency to be deceived by many misguided people that are united together is great. So Jesus wanted to protect his disciples from this misguided thinking of the multitudes that it was time to make him a king because they already had a bent in that direction just like the rest of the multitudes. But there's something else here, and that is that he wanted to protect them from the susceptibility of their own ignorance. To the influence. So you have the pressure of the multitudes, which is very strong. But then you have the problem of their own ignorance. So that when you put the two together, you've got a very deadly combination. That is why, look at Matthew 14, 22 again. That is why it says immediately. This is serious. It deserves an immediate reaction. Jesus, notice, made the disciples get into the boat. Their tendency was to be deceived because of their own ignorance. So that what he had to do was make them. In other words, they were reluctant to leave. You get it? He made them go. They didn't want to go. They were reluctant to leave. He he perhaps even had to raise the tone of his voice to make them go. He made them get into the boat and leave. What was he dealing with there? Their own ignorance. How I thank God... That he will protect me If I will seek him and I will listen to him He will protect me even from my own ignorance And I've seen him do it so many times I thank God for this This is a wonderful thing You see you look at these guys And they're like so many of us You say well wait How could they be so ignorant Already all this time with Jesus All this private tutoring even Never was there such flawless perfect teaching Every message hit the target They had to know so much Well, I have come to realize by studying the Bible, they still didn't know as much as they should have. They're like so many of us who have not learned as much as perhaps you might think we've learned given the reality that we've been taught so much. You follow that line of reasoning? So many of us have been taught so much, but we haven't learned near as much as we've been taught. There is a major gap between the two so many people follow Jesus and they have a surprising ignorance of what's involved that's what I'm trying to say I'm reminded of a new minister I read about who in the Sunday school he went to the church he was new minister taking over so in the Sunday school that day he decided to ask a few questions to test the knowledge of the students so you know just to see what they knew about the Bible his church had been there a long time, so he asked a few questions. He said to one boy, it's the easy one, who made the walls of Jericho fall down? You know what the boy said? It wasn't me, and that's for sure. <laughs> the minister turned to the somewhat embarrassed teacher. What do you think of that, he asked. You know what the teacher said? She said, listen, Tommy's a good boy. He doesn't tell lies. And if he said he didn't do it, I believe him. The minister thought that the church council ought to know of the appalling incapacity of the Sunday school so that he could rely on their support in a program to improve matters. So he reported what had happened. So the council considered the matter and in due course sent the result of their deliberations to the minister. And here's what they said. We see no point in making a big issue of this incident. It would be best simply to go ahead and repair the walls. And we are prepared to pay the damage and charge it up to vandalism. <laughs> That's so pathetic. So often, people have not learned near as much as they have been taught. They go along and time goes by, and they're still ignorant of so many of the basic things in the Christian life. Jesus knows He's dealing with that with his disciples. Jesus is fully aware of the ambition in Judas Iscariot. Jesus is fully aware of the impetuosity in Simon Peter. He is fully aware that he's got with him Simon the Zealot. He's fully aware also that James and John are known for their quick, hot tempers. So you get ambition, you get this zealousness, you get these hot tempers, you get this impetuosity, and you have Mr. Impetuous, Peter, at the head of it all, and you can have some real problems when 5,000 men gather around you and say, let's take him and make him king by force, and you already have a bent in that direction. So here he is trying to protect these dear followers of his who are going to carry on the work when he is gone. Everything is invested into these men. So he protects them from the susceptibility of their own ignorance. And how I thank God that he does that with us. And one other thing I see here is that he wanted to protect the little that they had already learned. You understand what I mean by that? Here's the mindset of this big crowd. It's unspiritual. It's selfish. It's materialistic. His disciples are being influenced by that. He has to immediately get them away. That's how strong the influence is. He knows that if they take a wrong turn and follow these people, come under the influence of this misguided multitude, that they will immediately begin to slowly unlearn the things that they had learned. So that he's not only protecting the ignorance they have, but he's protecting the enlightenment that they do have. I have noticed in my life as a Christian that when you take a wrong turn and follow the wrong examples that you begin to slowly unlearn what you have been taught from the Bible. And you begin to trade in the understanding of truth that you have for the experiences these people offer. And as a result, you unlearn all of your biblical patterns of thinking and you trade them in. ...for unbiblical thinking. In other words, he's working on the way these men think. They will be left to turn the world upside down when he's gone. Every day matters in this three-year period. And I thank God that he seeks to protect the same in us. And we have a great passion and a great commitment here... ...to seeing what has been learned protected. And when we see people begin to follow others... They want to live at a low level of life or they want to live in false doctrine or they want to blend Christianity with the world or whatever. We seek to protect what they have learned in the Bible. And if they reject that effort of love to keep their thinking biblical, then we will take a stand against them for the sake of the rest of you. And that is not unloving, that is loving. A good shepherd protects the sheep from the attack of wolves and lions and bears and all of that, besides just petting the sheep and being nice to the sheep. And that's a dynamic many of you don't often understand. And maybe some of you will never fully understand it, because you can't if you're not in that position. But there is an effort on the part of the Lord here to protect what little they had already learned, and we need to follow that example. So it's an unwavering protection, an unwavering protection. And it leads them right into an unavoidable test. Go back to John 6. And in verse 16, it all begins with a command from the Lord, as we have just looked at, even in Matthew. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat, and they went over the sea toward Capernaum. And Jesus made them get into the boat, we saw in Matthew this unavoidable test begins with a command from Jesus the command sends them into a test not only is it a command that protects them but at the same time while it protects them it sends them into a whole new kind of a danger you got to see that now the interesting thing is that this command that leads to this test is followed by a great blessing in the lives of these men in other words, watching the feeding of the 5,000... Can you imagine being a part of that? Here, take this. And you begin to pass it out and just keeps multiplying. So you're, you're part of the action. It was one of the greatest, if not the greatest day in their life so far with Jesus Christ. And yet, this unavoidable test follows immediately after their greatest high point in the Christian life. They find themselves in darkness... Jesus is not there, and they are hopeless in a storm. It's pretty heavy. You know why? Because it happens to us all the time. All the time. And so until you see that, you're going to go on being shocked. And the devil will use it as a a point of leverage in your life. He'll say, well, look at this now. Here you've just ascended into the heights. You've never gone up so high. And now here you are in darkness. Jesus is nowhere to be found. What kind of love is that? And you know, another reason you're here in this is because you're so sinful. And because you haven't got the point, he's just sort of let you go. He figured the blessing has had no effect. Can't you tell the blessing has had no effect? Here you are in darkness. It's storming. It's your fault. Until you see that often some of the greatest tests we face follow the greatest blessings we've been given and privileges. You're going to go on being surprised and dazed and confused at the hands of the enemy. This teaching here slams the door to that. It begins with a command. It follows a great blessing. Another thought here is that this test manifested their obedience. And I love this, and I hope to see this in my life. You see, Jesus had told them to go to the other side. We read in John that they got into the sea and they rode out three or four miles. Matthew said he made them get in the boat and he told them distinctly go to the other side Don't stop rowing till you get to the other side Now when we look at them here in the middle of this whole thing We find that they had rowed about three or four miles Verse 19 says Three or four miles Now, if it was only six miles to begin with, max, maybe five, and they've been out there rowing a long time, then you have to realize this is a great display of obedience. Some of the commentators, in fact, most of them take the view that they would have been very near to the land where they were going by this time because it was only five or six miles to get there. They've already gone three or four miles. Therefore, they're almost to the land, to their destination when Jesus comes to them. But think of this. The reason for the, the storm on the lake was the great wind that comes out of the north down pounding on the lake. And we've talked about that many times here. It's, The surface of the lake is about 682 feet below sea level. The wind comes off the mountains. It pounds the lake. And you can have these life-threatening conditions in seconds. And it can be a crystal clear day or night. So that wind would then be blowing them south. They're heading northwest. So having gone three or four miles... With the wind blowing, they're rowing against the wind. They would have been drifting. I don't know if you've ever been in those conditions, but you literally drift. They would have been drifting south. They would have been miles away in the wrong direction. Having even gone three miles, they would have drifted down south. So it's a pretty pretty heavy situation here. And what it does is it manifests their obedience. In other words, they're drifting south. They're heading northwest and they keep rowing. And they keep on rowing. You know what that says to me? These guys were really trying to do exactly what Jesus asked them to do. Why is that important? Because sometimes He's going to give us a command. It's going to even sometimes follow a great blessing. It's going to lead us into darkness and stormy waters. And it's going to be very difficult. And it's going to seem like He's not there. And the question is, what are we going to do? Keep going, keep on rowing in obedience Or give up. These guys went as far into the darkness and into the storm and they kept on obeying the Lord all the way. They were going to go to the death, it looks like, if possible, if they had to. So it began with a command, it followed a great blessing and it manifested their obedience. But another thing about this unavoidable test, it exhausted their strength. You see, turn in your Bible, hold your thumb here, turn to Mark chapter 6 to verse 48. Mark 648 It's very interesting. It says that he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them which I just explained. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. About the fourth watch of the night. Do you know what time that was? You see, the first watch of the night would begin at 6 o'clock. It would run until about 9 o'clock. Well, literally, right to 9 o'clock. From there, the second watch would begin and it would run till 12 midnight. The third watch would begin at midnight and it would go till 3 in the morning. The fourth watch of the night began at 3 in the morning and it would continue till 6 in the morning. Jesus dismissed the multitudes. He himself went up into a mountain to pray. Given the realities of how they live life, they ended their day around sundown in those days. So probably somewhere around 6 o'clock, which would be the first beginning of the first watch of the night, they get into their boat and they begin to row. The wind is kicking up. They're a little concerned, but they're fishermen. They live on this lake. They're all very familiar. It's probably Peter or James or John. One of them owns the boat. Not a big problem. We can handle it. But the night goes on. The wind gets stronger. And now they've gone from the first watch to the second watch to the third watch, and they're still rowing. What does that say? It says this. By the time Jesus came to them, they had been rowing against the wind in stormy waters in the dark for about nine hours. Nine hours. Now, rowing isn't easy to begin with. Rowing is hard work to begin with. But rowing in waves that are threatening your life And in the darkness And going on and on and on for nine hours or so Would have completely exhausted their strength So they start off in the beginning A little wind kicks up and you can see them They're gliding along and rowing and talking Boy what a day huh Oh I wish we could have stayed with the master Oh you know he went up to pray I wish we could have gone to pray with him And why did he have to send us away And you know he really should have taken that offer to be king And they're rowing along They're rowing along all of a sudden one of them stops and he is that a wind out of the north I feel yeah I think so yeah you're right yeah yeah a little wind kicking up no big deal we're fishermen and as the night rolls on they get a little does it seem to you the wind is getting a little stronger yeah I think it's getting a little stronger pretty soon they're in a full-blown gale they're in peril of their life and now they're rowing for their life they're thinking not a problem We're only going five miles here. We'll be there. But then they realize they're sliding south as they're rowing north. And now they realize, you know, we're in trouble. So they're rowing for all they're worth. And on and on and on it goes for about nine hours, at which time they would have been thoroughly exhausted. And now they would have been thinking, if Jesus doesn't do something immediately, we're going to die. And they probably started thinking that about five hours into it and went on and on and on. And so here they are. They have obeyed the Lord. They went into a test they could not avoid. And they are trying to obey. And yet it exhausts their strength. And now their only hope is Jesus Christ's intervention. And may I say, now they're exactly where he wants them. So this is not cruelty. This is discipleship. And it's done under the watchful, loving eye of a great loving God, so we have an unwavering protection. It leads right into an unavoidable test, but it is met with an undeniable love. Look at verse 19. It says in John 6:19, "So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. You know how he manifested his undeniable love? First of all, he had been prayerfully watching them. We don't get that in John. But we we get it indirectly when it says in John 19, so when they had rowed three or four miles and drifting, the same time they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and what does it say? Drawing near the boat. Now how did he know where they were? Well, it was Passover time. At Passover you have a full moon. So he could have seen them from the hillside in the moonlight. Some of the commentators take the position that he never did walk on the water and they say they were hugging the shore and the boat and then with the storm and all and it was dark, Jesus was walking along the side of the shore and they said, oh look, he's walking on the water. And that's because they want to explain away the miracle. That's a pathetic approach to a powerful text. But Mark tells us In Mark 6.47 When the evening came The boat was in the middle of the sea And he was alone on the land And he saw them Straining at the rowing Now the Passover full moon Would explain why he could see them The fact that you often have this great wind When there are not even any clouds Also adds to that reality So we are told by One of the other gospel writers That he went up to pray, he sent away the multitudes and he went up in the mountainside to pray. So here he is praying on the mountainside, but he is also watching them the whole time. I tend to feel that he's thinking over the entire plan he has for their lives, and he—they have just met with a great temptation. He has protected them against it. He's wanting to increase their faith. He's done all these things at once. I tend to think he was prayerfully interceding for them. Oh Lord. God, work in their lives, Father. Minister to these men, Lord. Let them get the most out of this test that they're in the middle of right now. Let them learn every little detail that they must learn in this unique test. And so he manifested his love by prayerfully keeping his eye on them, by watching them, and by interceding for them. So he had prayerfully watched them. Another way he ministered his undeniable love to them is he came out to them walking on the water, And we read in verse 19, when they had rowed all this way, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were, what does it say? Afraid. Now, they're already afraid, but they're terrified when they see Jesus come walking up alongside the boat because, frankly, they had never seen that exact thing done before. It isn't an everyday event they'd lived their whole lives on that lake and never seen anyone walk on it and no one has ever walked on it since so it was a fairly unique event he comes out and they figure people don't walk on water therefore it's already kind of creepy out here anyway the storm the spray we're tired we're exhausted we're frightened we're going to die then they see some guy walking along you know so they think they're seeing a ghost and they are terrified So here they are in their terrified condition It's so critical to me What Jesus says to them He says it is I Do not be afraid In other words I have come To give you everything necessary to give you out of this And what I want you to know right up front Is that I am especially concerned About your fears Fear is one of the most common afflictions I think we go through as Christians It's a strategy of the devil He uses it on us You find in the Bible God repeatedly ministering to fear in His people. It's critical to me that the first thing Jesus says to them has to do with ministering to their fear, taking the fear out of their lives. He knows fear has torment. He wants to teach us to live in the worst and most dangerous of circumstances in the midst of the stormy darkness, to live without fear because of Him. Because of Him. To understand that if He could find us out here, He knew where we were all along. If he could get to us in spite of the storm, he's really something. If he would come and the first thing would be to minister to our fear, then he loves us with an undeniable love. In Isaiah, I think it's interesting, in Isaiah, I'll read it to you 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine fear not because you are mine then he says this when you pass through the waters I will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overflow you and when you walk through the fire you shall not be burned neither shall the flame scorch you see all through the Bible God is ministering to us about when we pass through the waters we see these storms we see these accounts we see these miracles Always you find Jesus. Be not afraid. Fear not, fear not, fear not. God loves you so much. He knows the torment of your fears. He has designed the workings in your life to meet you in your fear in such a way that you will learn not to fear and that you will practice the presence of Jesus Christ. That you will understand that though I may not see him, he sees me. He understands my condition, he knows the situation, he's monitoring it. And he's using it toward the highest good in my life. And somewhere along the line, we learn to trust in the presence of Jesus Christ, even though we can't see him. And we allow that and that love of Christ to take the fear out of our hearts. D.L. Moody used to say that he had a favorite verse, the great evangelist D.L. Moody. He said, I have a favorite verse. He said, here it is. I will trust and not be afraid. That's my favorite verse. And he used to say, did you know that you could travel to heaven first class or second class? And someone would say, well, well, why don't you explain what it is to travel to heaven first class? He said, I'll tell you, it's very simple. Here's first class, I will trust and I will not be afraid. And they would say, well, what's second class? How would you travel to heaven second class? And he said, I'll tell you. It's another scripture. And it says, when I am afraid, I will trust in thee. He said, now you can go to heaven one of two ways. You will trust and not be afraid because you know his undeniable love or you will allow yourself again and again to be afraid. But the great thing is, is even if you're afraid and you're traveling second class, you'll still get there because he's with you. So let me say to you today, let me ask you, are you going to heaven first class? Is the motto of your life, I will trust and not be afraid. Or are you going to heaven? Thank God you are. But going to heaven, second class, when I am afraid, I will trust thee. When I am afraid. I think that it is a great thing when you pass up to first class out of second class as a Christian and you trust the Lord up front instead of wandering around in fear. Augustus Strong put it this way, Remember, Jesus is working on their faith here. He said, Augustus Strong said this, Faith is a knowledge conditioned by holy affection. Faith is a knowledge conditioned by holy affection. In other words, faith has to do with learning from Jesus in these times we're discussing here, but learning at the same time how much He loves me while He's teaching me in these hard times. And learning of His love while I learn of His faithfulness. Equals faith in my life Faith in my life has to do with The knowledge of Him never letting me down And The knowledge and understanding and experience Of how great His love is to me Faith then Is knowledge conditioned by holy affection Because you then love Him back As He has loved you And you are able to believe in Him You love Him so much And you know how much He loves you And how faithfully He is you realize the Apostle John was in that boat that night he was right in there with him he's writing looking back on the whole account when you think of John the Apostle what do you think of what's the first word what give you one word what's the word that comes to your mind what is John the Apostle known for who how did the walls of Jericho fall down <laughs> I don't know, but it wasn't me. Now, I know none of you are liars. Your word is good. How about love? <laughs> yeah, that's right. What do you think of when you think of First John? Love. He was in that boat. He learned his lessons. It's no mistake that in 1 John four sixteen he says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And then he said, God is love. That's what I've learned about him. And then he went on to say in 1 John 4:18, There is no fear in love, because perfect love casts out all fear. Be not afraid, it is I. And so he manifests this undeniable love in the midst of what was an unavoidable test. Then we come to the unpredictable deliverance. And so we read again, verse 19 down to 21. So when they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. And he said to them, It is, I do not be afraid. And, you can see why, they willingly received him into the boat. Oh, from here we can handle it, Lord. Last time, you were in the boat. There was a storm, but we woke you up. You calm the storm. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. So... You understand why they willingly received him into the boat. <laughs> would you mind if I get in the boat? I'm getting wet out here, you know? So immediately, then we read the boat was at the land where they were going. So that was another miracle. They just were suddenly done. Suddenly done. But the unpredictable thing is that who would have ever thought? Now they're out there figuring. Now we've been with him, he's worked this way and that way, but you know what? This time, there's no way. He doesn't have a boat. How's he going to save us? And all of a sudden, here he comes. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Woo! He's going over the waves and he's walking to them. That was totally unpredictable. Totally unpredictable. They would have never guessed that one. And what's the lesson to learn here? The lesson to learn is that When you think there's no way out, when you think that you've got it all figured out and you... I know how the Lord works. Look, I'm not a young brother. When you think there's no way out, know this. He loves to deliver in unpredictable ways. You know why? Because again, this whole thing is all about increasing our faith. So he takes them to the point where they have no more strength in themselves, no way out, And the idea is He wants to deliver them in such a way that their view of Him is expanded, that their view of His power and His love and His might and His insight into their fears is all expanded. So when they're done, He's a lot bigger God to them than he was when they went into the trial. Therefore, he loves to save us and rescue us and deliver us in unpredictable ways so that our view of him is greatly expanded and thus our faith is greatly increased. And so he comes with an unpredictable deliverance and he comes to them walking on the water and then, remember this, it was in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night. So it would have been that time when they were beginning to think, He's not coming. He's not coming. You ever been there? Now I've waited. I've been obedient. I've rode on. But He's not coming. When you married couples, one of you goes to the other, the one that caves in first. And you effectively say, He's not coming. The other one's saying, He'll be here. No, He's not coming. So, we've got to do something now. Now, we've been praying about moving to Outer Mongolia. We're not getting any answers. We need to do something now, by golly. Let's take a step of faith and sell everything and quit the jobs and move to Outer Mongolia. No, we better wait. We better wait. He'll be here. He'll minister to us, he'll take care of our fears. He's coming. No. So, off they go to Outer Mongolia, and it's a disaster, and then they come back. And it's been a disaster. And now they're ready to wait. <laughs> He'll be here. <laughs> he wasn't in Mongolia. He must be coming here. So he came in the fourth watch of the night. Did you know this? You may not know this. I'll end with this thought with you. The whole idea was that he wanted the test to run its full course. He wanted them to learn everything that they needed to learn. He wanted to take them to the point where their faith caved in so that at the point where their faith ended he could add to their faith that's why when Peter sank and there was nothing left but bubbles and Jesus reached down and pulled him up (laughs) he could add to the faith that had run out to its limit God bless him and the guys rowing had hit their limit they were beginning to go down and he adds to that faith it was real faith but it ran out he wanted the test to run its full course do you know that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. The Bible says God parted the Red Sea. They went across on dry land. But then, as they turned around and looked back, Pharaoh's army came across on the same dry land. And they're watching Pharaoh's army, their chariots. They're pounding after them. They're bearing down on them. And it goes on and on like that through the night. Do you know what time it was when God decided... To close up the Red Sea on Pharaoh's army. Do you you have any of you have an idea what time it was? You guys are getting fast now. (laughs) Exodus 14.23 says the Egyptians pursued them. And Exodus 14.24 says during the last watch of the night. The NIV renders it that way. The King James puts it first watch of the morning, which would be the last watch of the night. It was around 3 o'clock in the morning, between 3 and 6. It was the fourth watch of the night. And just when they were figuring, you know what, there's no way out. Thanks a lot, Lord. Do a great miracle. Part the Red Sea. Dry the land. We run across so we can die here. That's great. He's not showing up. He's not coming. And in the fourth watch of the night, just at the moment when he would be most glorified by his deliverance, he closes up the Red Sea and all of the armies of Pharaoh die. And the people are gloriously delivered with a much greater impact than they would have had earlier. And so the wonderful thing about the Lord is that He's never too early and He's never too late. But He is always faithful and He is always loving. And I love the way Mark wraps up the whole story. It says in Mark 6:51, He went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. They had the full impact the Lord wanted to give them. And Matthew says, and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord, thank you for your protection on us. Lord, help us when we are pressured to give in to the misguided multitudes. Help us, Lord, protect us as you did with these men here. Thank you, Lord, that even though often we find ourselves in tests that are unavoidable because we have obeyed you, that your will is to be found in your care and your love right in the middle of that test. Lord, help us to remember that sometimes the darkest hours follow the greatest heights and the greatest experiences in the Christian life. And Lord, let us... Always be mindful. The reason you don't come in anticipated ways is that you want to res- reveal another side of your power, another side of your love, another side of your protection, so that we can know you in a greater way and that we too can marvel and be amazed at your great power and your great love and your great faithfulness. And we ask these things that we might, might be near to you and be free from fear asking that your perfect love would permeate our hearts and lives and cast out and liberate us from the fear that is there, that we might enjoy you, walk with you in love and freedom. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.